the scripture reading. Psalm 63 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you <clears throat> upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. <clears throat> and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth they shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning. Um, my name is Reynolds. Uh, I am the uh, student pastor here. And uh, kids, y'all are going to stay with us this morning. And so I think you were given uh, some uh, a little packet as you came in, so uh, if you guys could, you know, if you, as Luke always says, it, it'd be cool to see some of the pictures you draw or notes you may take, that'd be great. Um, well, I hope everyone's New Year is off to a great start. Uh, my Rebels got beat last night, so mine did not start off uh, well, but I did not waste a trip down there, so that was good. Um, look, the, I was thinking about this, and this, this idea of a new year or even of making resolutions, has started to really seem odd to me. I know everyone does it, but it's just kind of, I mean, think about it, right? So many people put so much hope and promise into something, sorry, to something that's ultimately no different than the, chat, than the calendar changing from one day to another. Sort of like this, when I turned 30, and then again at 40, um, it really didn't phase me that much. I know for a lot of people it does, but um, I mean, think about it. At 11.59 one night, I'm 39 years old, and a minute later at midnight, I'm 40. Did anything really change from one minute to the next other than that number? But I can remember Cherise turning 30, and uh, she did not handle it well. Uh, <laughs> Not that she's 30, but, you know. Um, it devastated her. I mean, it really did. And I just kept saying, baby, I, it's, it's nothing really more than just a changing of a number. Like, you're no different today than you were yesterday. And, and it seems that way with the new year. But even so, we seem to find ourselves where each new year brings with it so much promise and hope for something better. And certainly that was the case for most of us as the calendar changed from 2020 to 2021. And for most of us, a lot of us, it probably seems that way from 21 to 22 all over again. But it really does seem to be that way every year. We, we, we resolve to do better, maybe to, to do more, maybe to do less, to slow down, to read our Bibles more, to exercise more, I know, is a popular one. We, we always want the next year to be better than last year, no matter how great last year was. But today I want to present to you a, a possibly sad truth. While the new year may bring hope 
and even possibly better fortunes, the reality is that the new year is just an arbitrary changing of the calendar date. The new year may still find us in the same desert or the same wilderness that we were walking through last year. Many of us feel as though we're lost in a wilderness today. Maybe you feel like you've been wandering for some time and you feel lost or you feel hopeless. Sadly, the new year isn't going to change that. In fact, the new year may bring more desolation or more difficulties like you've never experienced before. Such an encouraging way to start the year off at church, right? Like, but there is good news, though. Whatever your wilderness might be, there is real hope for you today. Here in Psalm 63, we find David in a literal wilderness in Judah. He's written at a time where he was likely on the run from his own son, from Absalom. He appears to be in desperation mode here, right? He's physically on the run with both his life and his kingdom in danger. We also find David here, though, in a spiritual wilderness. The temple is in Jerusalem, and he's separated from his community of believers who, who worship God the way that he does. He's not in their midst any longer because he's on the run. He's struggling physically and spiritually, and he's looking for answers. I can remember the last season at my previous job. For those of you who don't know, I also uh, coach football. And uh, we were in a town where we had very few real friends. I mean, literally like three or four people that, that we trusted, that we knew well. And we had no family close by, but I was really doing what I knew God had called me to do. And specifically, I can remember a loss that last season at Tioga, it's a little country town if you guys never been there. It was a game going into it I felt like we could win. And looking back even, you know, now, nine years later, I feel like uh, we should have, should have won. And at that point, we had to win that game to keep our playoff hopes alive. Um, but I benched my best player for the first half for disciplinary issues. Uh, every assistant coach I had said, man, you've got to play him. We've got to have him to win. Like, you know this. I know this. Like, he's got to play. Um, but I held my ground, right? He came in the second half. He has a monster half, like nine catches for 211 yards, something stupid. And uh, we end up getting beat by, I think, two or three points. So everybody knows if the kid plays in the first half, we would have won the game, probably going away. Um, but after the game, I still knew deep down that I would made the right decision. But it really hurt that it felt like it had cost me so much more than a loss. Right? Parents were upset. My assistant coaches were upset, didn't agree with me. Honestly, I didn't have a lot of people in my corner. There wasn't a lot of people I could turn to that I trusted at that point. I remember lying in bed awake that night and just rolling over, putting my head on Sharice, and just sobbing, like crying, like, man, this is, this is difficult. What's going on? So much was going on. I felt like I was all alone, like we, my family, Sharice and I and the kids were just all alone in the midst of this. See, God had granted me my heart's desire since I was 12 years old and allowed me to become a head football coach. And yet here I was doing things the 
quote-unquote right way, but we were getting our brains beat in pretty much every single week. You know, it began to dawn on me, maybe, maybe I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Maybe I was wrong about this. It was for sure a desert moment for me. We were part of the church there um, where we attended, but we never really invested in it in, in the sense of becoming part of a community. And that probably goes back to why we didn't have a lot of friends there. Um, we genuinely just felt alone in the desert. And I'd, I'd really be ashamed to share with you how many times, especially in that last year, but really over the course of all four years, when I just questioned often out loud, like, God, why? Like, what are you doing? It's kind of embarrassing. Well, David's doing the same thing here, but he, find those, he finds his answers in the same place that we should. Look at how he starts his psalm. He cries out to God. But he doesn't just cry out to God, like he makes it personal. He says, oh God, you are my God. And this is where God led me as well. In that moment, it was during this time when God really broke me down and reminded me that I belonged to him. He reminded me that he called me his own. He made it personal for me. And it's important for us to see that David doesn't see God as some far-off mystical deity, right? David knows that he belongs to God, and he has no hesitation in saying, you are my God. So what is God to us? Is he some far-off non-reality? Or do we actually understand the power of calling him my God? Notice also here that David, he isn't passive in his pursuit of God. David says, earnestly, I seek you. David is actively pursuing his God. Church, far too often we, we sit back and we hope. Maybe even we toss up a few prayer requests and, and we wait on God. We're being active or passive, I'm sorry, in our pursuit of God. Don't get me wrong. We are supposed to wait on God, to listen for God, right? But are we earnestly seeking him? Are we actively seeking his will for our life? David goes on. He says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Reminded me of the psalmist in Psalm 42 where he, he, he writes that as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So what does it mean to thirst for the living God? A lot of you may be familiar with the story of the Junction Boys, right? The Junction Boys is the name given to the group of survivors from, from Bear Bryant's uh, first uh, preseason camp in 1954 when he was the head coach at Texas A&M. He had taken a, a, a team to a small town in Texas Hill Country called Junction. And uh, they were in the midst of this severe heat wave and a drought like unlike anything the area had ever seen before. Many of you may have seen the, the ESPN special on that, but there had been a drought for four years leading up to 54 and would last for two years beyond that. Depending on reports, Coach Bryant may have taken up to 100 guys to Junction while they only returned with 38. Uh, they didn't die. They just quit and went back. <laughs> He felt like the team had been too soft the year before, uh, and so he wanted to toughen them up. 
and re reports from both the players who quit and, and, and didn't come back with the team and even the 38 guys who, who stayed say that there were no water breaks during the camp. The only relief they had were two cold, wet towels, one for the offense to share and one for the defense to share. I wouldn't last very long with that sort of mentality today. Coach Brian, others at the time, believed that water made you weak uh, and, and that they would um, weaken his team and that they would be cowards if, if they took these water breaks. These players were subjected to triple-digit temps for most of their time there. Almost every day, uh, history shows us, was recorded that to be over 100 degrees. They pushed the limit of their physical capabilities each day with no water breaks. Each practice session found them thirsty, desperate for water, just thirsty for one thing. And obviously we don't condone those tactics today. We've since clearly established that this isn't safe. Uh, and it's not safe because your body needs the water to function. And it needs to replace the fluid that it's losing during these intensely hot practices. These boys' bodies were thirsting for water, for really anything to drink. They were desperate, and I'm sure they would have given anything for just even a small drink of water. And I just imagine that this is what both David here in Psalm 63 and in Psalm 42, they had in mind when they referenced their soul. And David says that my soul thirsts for you. This isn't a, hey, I'm here so I could, yeah, I'll go for a drink. I'll, I'll take a drink of water. This is, this is this sort of idea that I have to have this now or I'm going to die type of thing. So where is this taking him? Where is this desperation leading David? Like, like why does he thirst for God. Well, these boys in Junction had reached a point where they would have given anything for a small amount of water. And in much the same way, David has reached a point here where he's realized that having God's love is better than his own life. So where does this thirst lead him? The answer is in verse 3. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And that's our first point today, is that we should be addicted to God's love. We should be addicted to God's love. Look, at, look again at what David says here. He says, your steadfast love is better than life. Do we believe that today? And not just in a new year, fresh start sort of way, like I'm going to change things this year, but in a real, from the depths of my soul kind of way. See, David did. Like, he knew what to be desperate for. He believed that God's steadfast love was better than life. I just wonder if we do. Friends, not only is God's steadfast love better than life, but it will last longer than life. When our physical life ends, God's love for us will continue forever. We see this clearly in John 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world. Ultimately, why did he love us? So that we could have eternal life. And this really points me to a convicting question this morning. As I was preparing is, is my own heart in love with God? Because David's was. We can look at Psalms 27 forward. David says this, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You think David's heart was in love with God? Absolutely it was. In fact, one author I read likened David 
to an addict. David was, in a sense, addicted to God's love. Excuse me. You ever ask someone what they would wish for if they had one wish, right? And they can't have more wishes, right? This is David's one wish, his, his only wish, to, to dwell, to abide, just to remain in the presence of God forever, just to gaze at his beauty. That's incredible. Calling it a, an, an addiction, right, it may sound a little extreme or have some negative connotations, but it really isn't. What it is is biblical Christianity. I'm not sure there's another type. But look at what Jesus himself says in Luke 14, 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You think that sounds a little extreme? Look, it isn't wrong to deeply love your kids or your spouse or your friends and family. I mean, in fact, we're biblically commanded to do so. But what Jesus is doing here is he's calling us to radically love him in such a way that any love that we have for anyone else pales so much in comparison to our love for him that it looks like hate. There's a song that we sing sometimes, and we've sang it at youth quite a bit. And one of the verses says this. It says, you can have all this world, give me Jesus. And I love that song. But every time I sing it, I find myself wondering if I really mean what I'm singing. Like, I, like I love it. Like, I love to sing this song. I love what it means. But I, I just always find myself almost not singing anymore because now I'm in deep contemplation of, of do I really mean this? Would I really give up this world for Jesus? Like, my stuff and my job, like, those are probably easy things that even if we don't mean it, we would say, yeah, you could take those. Like, give me Jesus. But my wife, my kids, that's ultimate. That's an ultimate thing to give up for Jesus. But addicts are willing to do anything or to give up anything to satisfy their craving. So do I really believe that God's steadfast love is better than life? Am I, are you really in any way addicted to God's love? We'll keep going here where David says that he will bless God as long as he lives. And I just kind of found this funny, like us, like, like bless, like we're going to bless God. Like in the very next verse, he says, like how do we bless God? He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I want you to think for a second about uh, your favorite meal, the best food you can think of to eat. For me, as I thought about this, it was my granny's cooking. And I can remember the first time that Sharice went with me when granny cooked for us. It was chicken and dumplings and turnip greens and purple whole peas and cornbread. Granny's cooking for me, so she cooked my favorites. And I can remember piling my plate as high as it would go and then making an absolute pig of myself, cleaning it. And then I just pushed my chair back from the table a little bit took slow, deep breaths, and about the third one, Sharice looks at me and she says, are you okay? I said, I'm okay, I'm just making more room, baby. 
and then I went and piled another plate up, and I ate that. See, <laughs> Granny's cooking was that rich and fat food to me. It was the best. My stomach was always satisfied afterwards. And what David is saying here is that God satisfies his own soul that same way. Like, do we feel that same sort of satisfaction? I bet right now some of you are maybe thinking about your favorite home-cooked meal, right? You might want to sit down at my granny's table and have lunch. Some of you want me to just shut up so you can go eat that food uh, right now, right? But here's the thing. When I, talk, when I talk to you about God's love, if we have a conversation, if you have a conversation with someone else, does the person that you're talking to walk away from that conversation feeling like they can taste it, feeling like they want it? Do you have the same deep desire for it? Like at that point, would you give anything for it? If we even talk to others about God at all, do we do it with the same passion and intensity and like specific detail that we do other things, like maybe Granny's cooking? Are we so satisfied in Christ that our soul sings to all who will listen? That's our second point today, is that we should be satisfied in Christ alone. Friends, every one of us here has sought satisfaction in something other than God. We may have even found temporary happiness, maybe felt a little satisfied, but it all goes away. A lot of you have, have seen uh, my red Jeep, and I love my Jeep. I've always wanted a Jeep, right? Uh, but I really honestly would have told you I don't really want a red Jeep, um, don't know why, just, just didn't like it, black or white or gray or really anything but red. But we found this at a great price, and I wanted the Jeep, so we bought it. And I was satisfied. I finally had my Jeep until sometime later I saw a black one that was sweet. I was like, ah, this is what I need. And then there was a white one. I was like, I want that Jeep. And so in less than two years after I had bought my dream vehicle, the car I wanted, I no longer was fully satisfied. And why? Honestly, just because of a different color. Like, this is how little things satisfy us. When we put our hopes of being satisfied in anything other than Christ, any sense of satisfaction you feel is always going to be temporary. So we can bless God by being satisfied in Him and then joyfully praising Him. I love what John Piper says. He says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Think about that. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In other words, we bring the most glory and blessing to God when our greatest satisfaction is found only in him. So how then are we satisfied in God? Like, What does this look like? Does it mean that we become satisfied and we no longer pursue God or that we seek after him? On the contrary, one of my favorite promises in all of Scripture comes from Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I love that promise. See, when I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then I will be satisfied. And because of that, our third point today is this, that God is worthy of our praise. And it probably seems like an obvious thing to say, right? Especially for us in the new year, like I'm going gonna, 
I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to go to church more. I'm doing, and, and so, yes, God is worthy. But I would argue this morning that few of us actually live our lives that way. Or maybe it's just me who's had that stark realization. But praising God shouldn't feel like a duty or an obligation. You know, it's easy for us to get excited about going to watch a sporting event or to go to a concert. But do we get that excited about coming to church? We get visibly excited and loud. I know, I know at my house, <laughs> my dogs go and hide in the room when I'm watching sports. We get, we get loud when one of our favorite players scores a touchdown or has some success or wins some award. But do we get that excited about seeing someone come to Christ? Or about seeing a broken relationship restored through Christ? Maybe what we should do is have a fantasy football, a fantasy league for that. Maybe we should give out fake championship rings for that. And it's sad, but it's true because we celebrate and we praise lesser things more than we do God. We'll show up to a concert around thousands of people we've never met. And we have no, they have no clue who we are. And we'll sing at the top of our lungs a song that was written and performed by someone who has no idea who we are. Yet we walk in church surrounded by other believers, by people who love us and who care deeply for us. And we'll stare at some musicians and a screen with words and not make a single peep to praise the one who created us. The one who not only knows us, but knows us more intimately than anybody else could ever know us. Who knows every single hair on our head. We're quick to post on social media when something good happens. Hashtag blessed, right? We see it all the time. Got a new car. Hashtag blessed. I'm not advocating the use of social media by any means, but... If, that's, if you post on social media and you post those things, how often do you go back and just post something about how good God is, about the character of God, just apart from anything that he's done for us? Too often we love and we praise his gifts and we fail to praise him. One commentator I read points out that if we were drowning at sea, as many of us are in our own sin, and a ship came along, we would certainly want the lifeboat to come rescue us. But that doesn't mean that we would love the captain of the ship. He goes on to say that if we aren't careful, we will become a bunch of people who don't want to go to hell and will therefore gladly take the lifeboat to heaven without ever having truly loved the captain of the ship. But not here. David focuses everything on God. Look at what he says. He says, I see you. I thirst for you. My flesh faints for you. I've looked upon you. I'm beholding your power and glory. I will praise you. I will bless you. I will meditate on you. My soul clings to you. He continually points back to God. Are we content to simply praise God for forgiveness and eternal life? Both very good things, obviously. Or are our hearts madly in love with God so that we praise him for who he is more than for what he does? So where does that take us today? Like, What are our next steps 
Well, first, I think we have to remind ourselves of God's love for us. In Psalm 77, 11 through 15, it says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So how do we remind ourselves of God's love? First, I would encourage you to make a list. You know, my wife is one of the most thoughtful people I know. Honestly, she is. And there are so many times when she does something or says something, I just look at her and I'm just reminded of how much she loves me. And oftentimes it's something so small or maybe insignificant to her that she may not even remember it. But I notice. And then there are times when she really, really upsets me. And for those of you who know her, I know that's probably hard to believe that she's the one doing the upsetting. But maybe in those times, I don't remember how much she loves me. I don't remember those little things. But I bet if I were to sit down and I were to make a list of all the things that she's done and the ways that she's shown me that she's loved me, just even over the last couple of months or the last year, I, I bet I wouldn't get very far into that list before I became overwhelmed at just how much this woman loves me, even at the times when I make it difficult for her to do so. So whenever you have one of those God moments where you unmistakably feel his love, write it down. Start a uh, uh, you know, go to the notes app on your phone and, and start a list there. Set a reminder to go off once a month just to go back and look at what God has done that month to remind yourself that he loves you and who he is. Also, share it with other people. Sharing that not only is a great way to remind yourself of how much God loves you, but it's a great way for you to share God's love with other people. The second way I would encourage you to remember this is to take communion. We're going to do this in a few minutes, Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 22 to do this in remembrance of me. And what better way to remind us how much God loves us than to remember that he laid down his body and he shed his blood for us. Secondly, this morning, cling to the Lord for satisfaction. You know, David says that his soul clings to the Lord. Imagine a small child being dropped off at, at daycare, right, and not wanting to leave his parents. He might drop down and latch on to a leg, not wanting to go anywhere. I don't know how little kids are that strong. Like, you can't get them off your leg. Their grip strength is amazing at that age. But why is he clinging so tightly to his parents? It's because his parent leaving brings about this sense of uneasiness, of uncertainty, even if he's in a place he's been hundreds of times. There's ultimately this desperate need for him to not be separated from his parents. And so it should be for us with God. Our soul should cling to him in all that we do. Our inner being should have an ultimate need and desire to be near God. So where are you seeking satisfaction outside of your relationship with God today? So how do we cling to the Lord? By doing exactly what Jesus tells us in Matthew 6.33. We seek first the kingdom of God. And then if we genuinely, as Paul says in Colossians 3, if we put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility, meekness and patience, 
if we bear with one another, if we forgive one another as we have been forgiven, putting on love above all, then the peace of Christ will rule our hearts. Next, today, I want to encourage you to daily give God the praise that he deserves. By meditating on God, by meditating on his word, especially in those moments where we know we're most vulnerable. David says he'll meditate on God in the watches of the night. It's just another way of him saying that this is when I feel the most vulnerable to attack, right? We all have situations that make us feel vulnerable to sin. We have situations where we're most likely and most tempted to stray away from God. These are the times we should be even more intentional about being in God's word and about returning to his promises. So take this idea of a new year and a new start. Redeem that, right? Dig into God's word. Jason mentioned earlier a reading plan. Uh, we're going to have a, a separate New Testament reading plan for our youth. There's literally hundreds of them out there and available to you of anything that you want to read and at whatever pace you want to read. I would encourage you to not just read but to find an accountability partner and to work through a reading plan with them so that you can hide God's word in your heart. The other thing I would encourage you to do is to write down at least one thought from that daily reading or just maybe something that God has shown you that day and then to read it several times throughout the day. It's just too easy to set an alarm or a reminder on your phone or to keep it somewhere where you look often. You can type it in your notes. You could screenshot it and save it as your lock screen. If you don't know how to do it, find a teenager, and they will be glad to help you with that. It says the average person checks their phone 96 times a day. That's 96 times of you opening up your lock screen and seeing what God had for you that day. That's 96 opportunities for you to meditate on God's word. Maybe this new year does give you sort of a stake to drive in the ground, right, and say this changes today, but I want to remind you that God's mercies are new every morning, not just every year. Maybe today you find yourself in the midst of a wilderness. Maybe what you thought was a rough patch has turned into some seemingly unending, dry, and barren desert. You find yourself wanting something more. You find yourself hungry and thirsty for something better. Point your soul to Jesus this morning. Thirst for him, hunger for his word and his will for your life. Church, his steadfast love really is better than life. It's not only better than our physical life, but it's also better than any life that this world can offer us. Cling to Jesus. Find your satisfaction in him alone and take great joy in praising him. We're going to take communion in, in just a minute. And, uh, and you don't have to be a member of our church to partake, but you do have to belong to God's family. I want to encourage you to take this time to reflect on at least one thing that God has done for you in this past year and just thank him for it. And then to further take this time just to remember his love that he, that he gave his body and shed his blood for us and to do this in remembrance of him. And Adam is going to come up, and they're going to play for us. And as he plays, I just want to encourage you to take this time to talk with God. Maybe today you need to seek satisfaction in Christ alone. Maybe today you need to seek his kingdom first. 
Maybe today is a day that you take that step of faith and cross the line from death to eternal life. Jason and Luke and some of our prayer team members will be available in the back if you, if you want to talk with them. I'll pray, then you guys can come take communion at the corners here when you're ready. God, we love you. We just thank you for your love. Thank you that your steadfast love, it's steadfast, and it is better than life, and it lasts longer than life. God, we thank you for your word, for your promises. God, that if we do seek your kingdom first, we will be satisfied. What an incredible promise. God, I pray that as we start this new year, that whatever that means for us, whatever time we're walking through, that we know that we don't have to wait on January the 1st to make things right with you, to, to, to come to you with all of our burdens, with all of our issues, with all of our wilderness, with all of our deserts, that our soul would cling to you in all that we do. Father, I pray for our church in this new year. I pray we would give more than we've ever given before. We would love like we've never loved before. God, we would seek your face in everything that we do beyond any sense of understanding about that we've ever had before. Father, we just again thank you for your word, your love, for your body that you gave up for us, for your blood that you shed for us. And I pray that as we take communion this morning, Father, we would do this in remembrance of you. In your name we pray.